The scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Morning. We have spent more than 20 weeks in the Old Testament through this series called The Story. And what we've learned through this is is God is trying to relate with His people. He wants to have a relationship with His people. And what we see as we study, He's done everything possible to make that happen. And yet, His people don't follow through. I mean, He blessed them, He provided for them, but they make foolish mistakes. He cleans up their mess. He sends them people. He sends prophets. Over and over again, He's there for them. But they don't seem to listen. And as we were ending the Old Testament study last week, we talked about that 400 years of silence where God is working behind the scenes preparing everything for the becoming Messiah. And what we know is as we read through those prophets and not just the prophets but all the way back to Moses and even really back to Genesis, it's always been about Jesus coming. I mean, all of the Bible is written that way. And this birth story is really about that storyline being fulfilled. When Jesus comes... What we learn is that many people, they miss out. They were looking for the Messiah, but they didn't recognize Him. It was a case of mistaken identity, and they didn't know what to think, and they didn't think it was Him. I think it was a Wednesday night crowd. I told a couple of months ago, there was a um, man that was exiting a grocery store, and as he was, he met in the doorway this rather good-looking young lady that um, met him. She was coming in. He was going out. And so she was very cheerful and very attractive and just very friendly. And um, he said, good evening. And, and her face was beaming. And it, it, like they knew each other. And she said, who? What? And they were talking about that, trying to figure out, how do I know you? And she realized she made a mistake. And she said this, I'm so sorry, when I first saw you, I thought you were the father of one of my children. Well, he didn't know what to make of that. And, you know, awkwardness just continued. And, and, and she went in and, and, and he, he went out. And, and he sat there dumbfounded and thought, what's, what's come of these young people? I mean, he, here's this beautiful, attractive young lady. And she doesn't even keep track of what the father of her children looked like. And then his ego kicked in and he thought, well, she obviously thought that I might fit that mode. And then his conscience kicked in and he thought, I hope nobody heard that. That I would be suspect that she would think I was one of her former suitors. Stunned. All the way back to his car. He never realized that she was a second grade teacher. And thought that he might be the father of one of her students. It was just a case of mistaken identity. You ever done that? You see somebody, you're in a store, in the event, and, and you look and you kind of wave, or maybe you say hey to them, and then when you look close because they're giving you that look like, who are you? You realize, oh, I'm sorry, I, I don't know you. And you feel so forward or, or out of place, it's so awkward, a case of mistaken identity. It happens 
all the time. It especially happened when it came to the Messiah. Jesus was the coming Messiah. And He made that statement, but not everybody took Him at His word. Jesus comes, and the masses are quite skeptical. I mean, how could this man, born to this peasant family, be King of kings and Lord of lords? And when you stop and think about it, it's not logical at all. I mean, even in his hometown of Nazareth, they seek to throw him off a cliff because he claimed to be God's son. And in Scripture, what we notice when you read the birth story of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they all do it differently. And it really, to me, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, Matthew, you know, if you've studied this before, Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. So he's writing to, to people who they're so proud of their Jewish heritage. So he's pointing out that Jesus is the coming King. So Matthew 1.1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how it opens. Because to the Jews, lineage was everything. It's about the family of God. It's about the people. A lot of name dropping here. That was important. But you flip over to Mark's Gospel, he doesn't mention that. No name dropping. In fact, Mark's Gospel doesn't even mention the birth story. I mean, as Mark opens up his Gospel, it's just all about action because he portrays Jesus as a servant. He skips a lot of the details that the others carry. He just wants people to know he's a man of action. And then Luke. Luke writes to the Greeks. And the Greeks are detailed people. They want to know the backstory. They want to know the history. They want to know the details. And so Luke accommodates. Luke 1.3. The Gospel opens up there. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account. And so Luke gives us several clear snapshots of, of Jesus' birth. In fact, when we want more of the details, we go to Luke. Because he gives them. And then John. John writes about the coming Messiah. But he writes about it in a way that not so much a play-by-play like Luke does, and and Matthew gives some of that too. John kind of backs up from, or or zooms up from like a a 10,000-foot perspective. Here's the big picture. And he writes in a poetic way. Look at the way John opens. John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. John wants us to know something. John wants us to know that Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. He's writing here in these beautiful words that Jesus is eternal, just like God the Father, just like the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you of something that I shared several months ago when we started this series. You could divide the Bible up into three sentences. You could take all of the Old Testament, it could be summed up into the one sentence, Jesus is coming. And then when you turn to the New Testament in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you could summarize that to say Jesus is here. And then from Acts all the way to the end of Revelation, Jesus is coming again. So you better be ready. So for several months, we've been in the Old Testament where prophets like Moses and Isaiah and Daniel have been talking about this Messiah coming from the very beginning of God's story. So the Hebrew people knew the Messiah was coming. They had been waiting for the Messiah for a long time. And in our reading of the story this week, we saw that the last person to speak about this coming birth was the last prophet in our Bible, Malachi. 
But Malachi doesn't give a due date. You know, when, when people are expecting us, when are you expecting? What's the date? We want to know. But Malachi doesn't give that. The only thing he does is says that the next prophet to speak for God would introduce the long-awaited Messiah. And this mysterious next prophet would remind people of the prophet Elijah. 400 years later, John the Baptist comes on the scene. And he does remind his people of all they've heard and studied about Elijah. And he lets the people know it's time. The Messiah is here. Now, you and I know the birth story. If I just did a whole sermon about what we read in the story this week, I mean, we know about the angel talking to Mary. We know about the angel talking to Joseph. We know about their journey to, to escape Herod's acts. We know about all that happened, that there was no room in the end. We, we know all that goes on with this story. But I want to focus on this. Why is it so important? Why is this so central? Why is this the focus of Scripture? I mean, all the Bible is about Jesus. If you notice, we put the sermon line, uh, the sermon notes uh, as an insert. If you flip to the back side of that, if you're not already, you're going to see something that I put together. It's, it's a, a, a list of every book of the Bible of how Jesus appears. Maybe you've studied this before, if not, and we made this as an insert so that you could take this home maybe for further study. And what you have there is a compilation of about six or seven, eight different lists. And, and the reality is, as I was trying to find them, and I've got a couple of them already, and I looked and found some more, I didn't like any one of them all together. And even the one that you have, I don't like it completely, because you keep studying and you think, well, I'd put this in that book, or this in that book. But here's the point. Jesus is in every book of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. Sometimes you read through it and you don't see it. And sometimes you read through it, it's just so obvious. But it's all about Jesus. So what I want to do is kind of really focus on John's Gospel this morning. And the way he opened it up. And really ask the question, why is his birth so unique? Why is this such a focus? And so if you fill in the blanks, follow along with me. Jesus' birth was special because, number one, Jesus existed before he was born. Jesus existed before he was born. Look back at the text, John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. When John says Word there, he's referring to Jesus. And before we get into that, we need to understand why. Why would he choose to open his gospel this way and use that term, Word, to describe Jesus, this coming Messiah? I mean, you and I might just read through that and think, well, that's just a, a neat term to use. But we need to go back and set the context. When John wrote his account of Jesus, his gospel, he was the last of four to write it. It's also interesting because his is the most original. He doesn't copy much of the others. There's no, uh, you know how you compare the Gospels. John is more unique than all the others. But when John was writing his message, we have to remember that the good news had spread well beyond just the Jewish people. A lot of the non-Jewish people had also heard about Jesus. This is because of missionaries like Paul and, and others who had left the Holy Lands there in Jerusalem and just the surrounding areas and had gone all throughout Asia Minor and over to Greece and even to Rome. So the borders of the kingdom had spread. No longer was it just a Jewish way of believing. 
Now it was truly worldwide. A lot of different believers, a lot of different backgrounds. In fact, one author said this, by the time he wrote his gospel account, there were probably 100,000 Gentile Christians for every one Jewish Christian. So that kind of gives you the perspective there. So if you're John and you're writing about Jesus being born, about who he is, how do you do that? He's writing to both these groups. He doesn't want to isolate anyone like Matthew, do a lot of name dropping. These Greeks would know who these people are. Especially the atheists. They've not been to synagogues. They don't have a background knowledge. So what do you do? John uses this term, word. Something they could relate with. You probably say this before, it's logos in the original. To the Jews, it was a way of communicating that He is the creative power of God. That He brought creation into existence. They only need to look to Christ. But to the Greeks... When they would hear this word, when they would read this term, it was a way of saying he's the controller of the universe. They used the word logos or, or the word, it became an actual person. And it was important in that way. So by saying the word was Jesus, John would be speaking to both cultures, both those of a Jewish faith background that would know what he meant by that, and also those who weren't from a church or Jewish background who have no idea what he meant by that. Still, that term was loaded for them, but in a different way. So John opens his gospel by transporting us, even before creation, even before time itself. Remember the way the book of Genesis opens? In the same way. The way John opens. In the beginning. In the beginning. Now, if you translate that from the original language, actually it reads like this, to exist independent of any beginning. That's what it actually means. Or as one author says, in the beginning that had no beginning was the Word. This is what John is saying when he's saying in the beginning was the Word. So John is reaching out really to first century atheists who need to know about Jesus. But where do you start? He goes back to the beginning. He says actually it even goes back before that. that Jesus Christ did not come into being in Bethlehem. He's always been. He's eternal. One author put it this way, the baby Mary, the baby Mary held was connected to the dawn of time. He was the first ray of sunlight and heard the first crash of the wave. The baby was born, but the Word never was. And again, this shouldn't really be a shock to us because as we've gone through the story virtually book by book, We've seen Jesus throughout. If you study some of the background, it's not unusual. Scholars would agree. It was Jesus Himself whom Jacob wrestled with. You ever study that? Or, or when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire, there's a fourth man. Who was that? Was that Jesus? When Joshua was with a man who called himself the commander of the army of the Lord. Who was that? It was Jesus. He's throughout Scripture. See, unlike any other person, He existed before He was born. I don't know about you, but that to me speaks in a powerful way that Jesus always was. All that Jesus is, He always was. He's eternal. In fact, you think about that. 
You can't say that about any other founder of the world's religions. It's not true. I mean, Buddha had a beginning and an end. Muhammad had a beginning and an end. Confucius, a beginning and an end. All of them. But this baby born in a manger, in a cave, for sheep, were... That wasn't the beginning of Jesus. What also this means, and I want to kind of make this point, it also means that God has always been like Jesus. Sometimes we have in our mind that the God of the Old Testament is the lawgiver. And He's the judge. And He's the stern one. And He sets the rules. This is who God is. But when Jesus comes on the scene, it's sort of a a more kind and friendly God. And He talks about love and grace and forgiveness. Now, if you have that concept of God and Jesus in your mind, let me just share, you didn't get that from reading the Old Testament and New Testament. Because Jesus is God. They are one and the same. Their nature is the same. Their character is the same. So it's not like God got in a good mood when Jesus came on the scene and He changed. God doesn't change. The Old Testament is full of grace and truth and love. And the New Testament also talks about judgment and and laws and, and, and rules. Both are true. John puts it this way, verse 18 of chapter 1, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Jesus is revealing who God is, who He's always been. That leads me to the second point. Jesus was a man who was at the same time God. Back to verse 1. He writes, the Word was God. Actually, if, if, you're, you know, if you go from different languages, you know the Greek is in different order, and, and the Hebrew is in different order. It is, it, it's not always a word-for-word translation. Actually, I mean, God was the Word But understand this, what John is saying here, he's not saying that Jesus was identical to God, like an identical twin or a copy. I think in a way that we cannot fully understand this side of eternity, Jesus was God, is God. And what that means is this. When we read through the birth story, that baby that Mary held in her arms was Almighty God. That child in the temple confounding the priest was Almighty God. That man who taught and fed the multitudes was God. The man who who healed the sick, made the lame walk, raised the dead was God. The man who died on the Roman cross was God. The one who rose from the dead was God. And when you look at Jesus Christ, you're not seeing a Jew who lived 2,000 years ago and had a tragic ending. What you're looking at is eternal God Himself who existed before time, before creation, came to earth in the form of a man for 33 years, and now is with God again. I'm reminded of something the astronaut James Irvin said after his walk on the moon. He said this, there is one thing better than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on the earth. And that was Jesus in the flesh. That means everything that he said about God, the Father can be said about Him. They're one and the same. In every way, He's God. I bring this up because sometimes there may be somebody knocking at your door and they're going to have a translation of a Bible that's different than yours. The Jehovah's Witness will take this 
verse. And they have the New World Translation. And the way they word that is like this. And the word was a God. They put that word a in there. Now think about that. It's also lowercase. When you do that, for one, you're adding a word that's not in the original. John didn't write it that way. He said the word was God. But they add that word a in there. But he's not a God. Jesus is not God-like, but God incarnate, the creator of the universe and human flesh. And I think he underscores that. Look in verse 3. Through him, talking about the word, all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Every single part of the universe came into being through him, is what he's saying. In other words, Jesus, the word, created everything from, from atoms to the sun. And while we're on the subject, he didn't just create it. Look, look what Paul wrote, Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's talking about Jesus here. You know, we speak of the law of gravity and all the different things about science that holds things together. But the reality is, the bigger picture is, Jesus is who holds everything together in its proper position. Maybe you've read about a very important protein that is in your body. There are many of them, but one is called laminin. If you've not studied this, you can Google it, look it up for yourselves. Our body cells organize themselves on a molecular structure in so many different ways. But there's one that scientists have, have identified. It's called laminin. And these are cell adhesion molecules. They actually hold everything together. And the way they are, and again, Google it, look it up, they form a cross. It holds everything together. Now, sometimes they don't appear like a cross, and they may be kind of curled or whatever, but if you stretch them out, that is the shape, if you study that. And when I read that and I think about that, it just makes it all come alive. In Jesus, the whole world is held together because He's the Creator. He was there in the beginning. He holds my life together. I mean, you read this text from John, you think about all the tough times you've had in life. Jesus knows. He understands. He's been there. Jesus made the Word flesh. And even now, He holds our world together. One author paraphrased this verse from Colossians to read like this. Jesus was before all else began, and it is His power that holds everything together. Let me share another couple of verses. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Same message. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. This Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. And look at that last phrase. Sustaining all things by His powerful Word. This is Jesus. In the Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things by your will. They were created and have their being. But here's the point. How does God become a baby? Does He know everything at that stage? Is He still omnipresent? How do you explain that one? You ever struggled with some of that? How can God, with all of His attributes, become a person? One commentary explained it like this. He merely laid them aside. 
Theologians call this choice kenosis. Starts with a K, kenosis. And that word is derived from a Greek term. It means to empty. To empty. Remember Paul's words talking about Jesus? He emptied himself. Gave some things up. Maybe the best way to illustrate this is to think about Thomas Mott Osborne. You ever heard of him? Thomas Mott Osborne. The year was 1914. It was October. He entered the prison in upstate New York. And like all the other prisoners, he was photographed and fingerprinted, stripped of everything he owned, all of his possessions, checked him at the door. They gave him a suit of prison grays. They led him to a cell that's four feet wide, by seven and a half feet deep, by seven and a half feet tall. That was his life. And locked the door. The only difference between him and the 1,300 other inmates is that Osborne was a free man. He had freedom. And yet there he was in prison. See, on his command, he could leave at any time. He just had to say the word. After his appointment to the Governor's State Commission on Prison Reform, he made it his mission to live as an inmate. He wanted to go. And not just visit, but live like one of them. Sleep in their bunk. Eat the food. Do their regimen. Live like a prisoner. And what he wanted to do is come out of that after a period of time as their advocate. If you want to talk about prison reforms, you've got to get in there and see what it's like. Not just a visit, but an experience. He voluntarily laid aside his freedom to experience life behind bars. These are his words. I'm a prisoner, locked, double locked. By no human possibility, by no act of my own, can I throw open the iron grating which shuts me from the world into this small stone vault. I'm a voluntary prisoner. It's true. Nevertheless, even a voluntary prisoner can't unlock the door of his cell. Do you hear what he's saying? He could get out, but he couldn't get himself out. He was at the same time free, and yet he was in prison. Jesus was omnipotent, but by his own choice, lays us aside, becomes as dependent as an infant child. He set aside his rightful entitlements of deity to be born among the poorest of the poor. So John tells us he's eternal. He tells us he's God. Let's go a little bit deeper. John says that Jesus, God, who is spirit, became flesh. Look there in John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This one who was before creation, this one who is God, the spiritual being who, who created us, became flesh, became a human. Hard for us to grasp. Max Lucado is an excellent wordsmith. Listen to how he describes this. The artist became oil on his own palate. The potter melted into the mud on his own wheel. God became an embryo in the belly of a village girl. Christ and Mary 
God in Christ. The Word of God entered the world with the cry of a human baby. His family had no cash or connections or strings to pull. Jesus, the maker of the universe, the one who invented time and created breath, was born into a family too humble to swing the price of a bed for a pregnant mom-to-be. John was telling us about this glorious birth of God. He's not detached from us. He left heaven to become one of us, or His wording, to make His dwelling among us. Another author says this, God's own Son was leaving the upper story to come down to not only be with us, to be one of us, to walk with us, to talk with us, live with us. We refer to this as the incarnation, which literally means in the flesh. Through Jesus, God came down and took up His flesh among us. So God wore flesh like us. I want to be careful because sometimes, and I read this, putting this together, sometimes people will say, well, he did that so we could understand what it's like to be a prisoner, kind of, in the same setting about Osborne. Not so. God is God. God knows what it's like. He created us. But he became a flesh to live, to eat, to breathe, to suffer, to have joy, to experience life so that we could know that He knows. He's not way up there and says, I know because I created you. He came down in the flesh and says, I've been there. I've experienced it. I know what you're going through. See, when somebody cries out to God, maybe it's a, a, somebody in another country, maybe it's somebody in a palace, maybe it's somebody who's blown it for the hundredth time, God doesn't shake His head and say, When will they ever get their act together? God knows exactly what's going on. He can remember the pain of a hungry belly and the the cold of a chilly night. He knows the suffering of abandonment of a good friend. He knows what it's like. After all, God heard His earthly parents tell the story of how they were turned away in their hour of need. But again, He wasn't just born so He can say to us, I understand. He was born in the flesh so that He could make a way to pay for our sin. He became real flesh, real blood, lived a sinless life so that He could take on us the, the penalty for all of us. God wanted us to be one with Him. God wanted us to regain what was lost with Adam and Eve. He wanted to restore. He wanted to recreate. He wanted to redeem. And that's why He called Jesus our Redeemer. And this grace-filled blessing came through this special birth. It's through Jesus. Lucado tells about a man in a difficult time. It was Christmas 1993. Maybe you've heard of this. It was new to me there was a curious offer that appeared in the newspaper. This was just uh, uh, in the weeks uh, during the the Depression. But here was the the article. It it was titled, Man Who Felt Depression Sting to Help 75 Unfortunate Families. The man's name was Mr. B. Verdot. V-I-R-D-O-T. B. Verdot. He promised to send a check to families in need. And it was during the Depression time, so everybody was in need. And so all they had to do was, in their letter, just describe their plight and, and send it to the post office and mark it to general delivery. Now, in that day and time, again, everybody was in need. 
but nobody wanted a handout, and, and so they weren't sure what to do, but sure enough, the letters came in. Here's a couple examples. Mr. Burdott, I hate to write this letter. It seems too much like begging. My husband doesn't know I'm writing. He's working, but not making nearly enough to feed his family. Mr. Burdott, we are in desperate circumstances. No one knows, only those going through it. Everybody in Canton, Ohio, knew of his offer. But here's the strange thing. Nobody knew him. In the city's registry of 105 citizens, there was no such name. People began to wonder, did he really exist? Was this a hoax? Was it going to happen? But then, just in a matter of weeks, the checks started coming. They weren't huge. Five dollars, maybe a little bit more. But again, in that day, in that time, that was a lifesaver. Years passed. Decades passed. Nobody ever knew who this man was. Then in 2008, a man named Ted Gupp opened up a tattered suitcase in his parents' attic. There he found the letters, all dated December 1933 and 150 canceled checks. In this way, Ted discovered that Mr. B. Verdot was Samuel J. Stone, his grandfather, who was already deceased. B. Verdot, he had three daughters, Stone did, Barbara, Virginia, Dorothy, kind of put those together, created this pseudonym. Here's the point. There's nothing really privileged about him. In fact, his life, his upbringing was marred by challenges. He wasn't wealthy. He was 15 when his family immigrated to our country from Romania. They settled in a Pittsburgh ghetto where his father hid Sam's shoes so he couldn't go to school, could stay home, forced him and his six siblings to roll cigars in the attic. Still, Stone persisted. He left home to work on a barge in a coal mine. Then the Depression hit. At that time, he owned several small uh, uh, clothing stores, a small chain, lived in relative modest comfort. Wasn't affluent. But he wasn't impoverished. He was willing to help. He was an ordinary man living in an ordinary place, but became the conduit of extraordinary grace at just the right time. And I think Samuel Stone's actions really just reflect what Jesus did. He became an ordinary man. Ordinary circumstances. So much so that so many people of his day and time didn't believe it's true. Even today, a lot of folks say it can't be. But this ordinary man, ordinary circumstances, ordinary details became the conduit of God's extraordinary grace. We were poor, suffering from our staggering debt of sin, and Jesus came to pay it all. One last verse, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. See, the way John writes his Gospel, he really puts it out there and he forces you to decide. He gives us the dilemma. See, we know the birth story. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Later in his gospel, he says the reason he wrote the book is so that those who read the words, those who hear the words, 
might believe, have abundant life. Jesus says that He came, and John said Jesus came, He was rejected by some, but all those who believed in Him, He gave the gift of eternal life. We're going to worship by standing and singing a song. And for you to think about the dilemma, what do you believe? Maybe you've heard the birth story all your life. Maybe you've read John's words. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you ready to confess that to others? Have your sins washed away in baptism? Repent of your sins. Let Him make you a new creation to give you the gift of His Holy Spirit to add you to His kingdom. Or is your life reflecting your belief? If you need to come to Jesus, why don't you do so as we stand and sing?